Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Blister Podcast, Gear 30. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Alpine Touring bindings, including a new one that we're very interested in, the Z binding from G3. So Blister editor Sam Shaheen joined me to talk to three of G3's finest, Cam Shute, G3's director of product, binding engineer Simon Hammond, and Mike Coletti, who is a product development engineer at G3 for skis and bindings. Among the things we discuss are the design philosophy and development process of the new Z binding, current trends in AT bindings, and the compromises that are inherent in any AT binding. Before we get started, I want to remind you that we continue to churn out more deep dive comparison articles and more flash reviews on the site. So to get our immediate initial impressions on, for example, the new Technica Zero G Tour Pro AT boot, or our deep dive comparisons on the Rossignol Soul 7 HD or Blizzard Rustler 11, become a Blister member and you'll get access to every single thing we publish. And we'll also send you in the fall the print and digital edition of our 1819 Winter Buyer's Guide. And you'll also get a number of great money-saving deals from a number of ski companies and some of our Blister-recommended shops. To learn more about the details and to become a Blister member, just click on the navigation bar on the Blister website, where, as I always like to point out, it very conveniently says, become a Blister member, and you'll be on your way. And of course, your support is what allows us to continue to stay 100% independent and to continue to take no money from any of the product manufacturers we review. So that's that. Thanks for becoming a member. Check out those deep dive comparisons and flash reviews. And now let's talk new AT bindings with Cam, Simon, and Mike from G3. Well, we are talking now with a number of people in a bunch of different locations. Uh, so I've got my trusty podcast sidekick, Sam Shaheen, uh, who is currently in Denver. How are you, Sam? I'm doing great. Thanks. Great. And then we are joined with three folks from G3. And so uh, first up, we have Cam Shoot. Cam, why don't you tell us a little bit about how long you've been at G3, what your title is, um, and anything else you feel like sharing. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for that thoroughly awkward introduction. Um, <laughs> I, I have the title at G3 of Director of Product, and um, I guess that's just what we call me because I've been there long enough to kind of be involved in most things product. Um, I've been at G3 since 2002. Um, and I was originally brought on to, uh, design AT bindings in 2002. And I eventually got one done with the team in about 2008 and then <laughs> did a few telemark bindings in between there and worked on skins and other stuff. So, um, yeah, I've, I've just been a, a part of the G3 product development team for, a very long time. Next up, uh, in no particular order, um, we're going to go with Simon Hammond. Uh, Simon, tell us uh, the same. What is your title? How long have you been roaming the halls of G3? 
Uh, I've been here for two years, and I've been uh, working in product development as the binding engineer. Okay. That was much more succinct than Cam, by the way. So <laughs> less, less awkward, too. Plus, yeah, plus, plus Cam made fun of me right off the bat, so he's kind of in the doghouse already. Um, last but not least, we have Mike Coletti. Uh, Mike, same, same questions. How long have you been at G3? What's your title there? Uh, so my title at G3 is product development engineer. Um, and I've been with the company for almost 10 years, um, off and on at the start because I was doing my degree, but, uh, yeah, I've been with them since the beginning of my engineering degree. And my focus is mainly in skis, but I'm also support on, uh, bindings. Okay. Well, it sounds like we're, Sam, I think we're talking to the right people today, uh, because, our first order of business is to talk about this new G3Z binding. Um, and so, Cam, I guess we will allow you to start here. Um, how long ago did you start working on the Z binding, and what was the primary goal in creating this thing? I guess I'll start with the binding that we released before the Z binding, um, which was the ION binding, and it's it's been a pretty... Um, big thing for us at G3 and it's been a positive product in the market. Um, but after we delivered that product, I was always left just wanting to um, strip it down to its most minimal, um, lightest, simplest kind of form. And I believe that with like pin bindings, the thing that they do best is um, they're light and simple and they, they help people tour. So to answer your question, I think we started in uh, July, 2017. Okay. There, there was ideas kind of before that, but the work in earnest started then. July, 2017. That is, you've become much faster since your first binding that took six years. That's a pretty astute observation. Yeah, I'm good at math. I'm, I'm good at simple math, I should say. Simon or Mike, sort of the same question. I mean, talk about, you know, you heard just heard Cam's actually very succinct take on this, but same question. I mean, as you guys have been working on this thing, uh, was it was it as simple as like let's take an ion and just simplify simplify? It probably should have been, but um, I think we ran into some areas where we, or at least I learned a lot, and areas that were a bit surprising. And we tend to have a plan, and, and it's and it's flexible enough that we can uh, change it as as needed, but. In terms of where we're going, I don't think that ever changed. I think, but the the route along the way, there was some kind of uh, s some development opportunities that we we um, went after uh, in terms of like concepts or features for the binding that we had to either change on the fly or improve or just uh, you know save for later. So it was for me, it was an interesting process. Yeah, I agree totally with Simon. I mean, what you first start out with and expect a binding to look like is not the same as what the end result is. Um, we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do, but we didn't know it was going to turn out the way it was, or the way it did, I should say. Okay. So 
I'd love to hear more about the parts that seemed uh, remarkably simple and where things got tricky. Uh, Jonathan, could I just uh, describe kind of the process a little bit? And that, and that I think will lay the groundwork. So I think about, above all of our desks, we have this image posted and, and it's called like the emotion, emotional journey of creating anything great. And so it starts kind of at the top of the hill on the left. And it's like, oh, this is the best idea. This thing's going to be so rad. It's going to be so fun. And then it slowly kind of start to go down the hill. And it's like, oh, this is this is kind of harder than I thought. And oh, this is going to be a lot of work. And then you, you kind of miss this bridge. And then you, you hit a point where it's like, this sucks. I have no idea what I'm doing. And at that point, you're you're kind of in the middle of the project. And you're in what we refer to as the dark swamp of despair. Um, and like, depending on how good a product developer you are or how much support you have, like the amount of time spent in that swamp can like, it can be real short or it could be really long. Like I spent a few years in that swamp or in the early days, but with like belief, persistence and a bit of humor and, you know, family support, usually you climb out of that and then, but you're still left kind of as soon as you get out, you're like, oh, this still sucks. Um, and then, you know, it kind of picks up, picks up and it gets more real and then industrial design comes in, it starts to look better. And at the end of the day, you wind up kind of on the hill to your right, higher than you were. And, and you're actually really proud of what you've created. And uh, I've been trying over the years to refine our process. So we spend like the minimum time in the in the swamp, but it seems like it's just like inevitable that we always wind up in there for at least a portion of the project. Fair enough. So this should have been called the swamp of despair, maybe rather than the Z. <laughs> <laughs> cool. You're welcome to use that, by the way. It's uh, if you if you if you want to do a rebrand, it's uh, you, you're welcome to the rights to that name. <laughs> I think Simon spent the most time in that swamp, so he could probably comment on that. <laughs> Simon, you're up. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things is also the the naming too. I mean, things that you think are going to be easy, right? Like, oh, we're going to come up with a great name for this binding. You know, we we didn't just all of a sudden, you know, come up with Zed and high five everybody and be like, yeah, work today is done. It, it it's a process, kind of like everything, right? And it has. You know, as engineers, we're not super great, maybe on the emotional side of, of product development, but we've got a good enough team here. That, Speak for uh, yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> Cam just sounds like a straight up poet, by the way. That's at least what the marketing people tell us is like, oh, don't get the engineers to, to talk about it. So, so I mean, yeah, but, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that things that, that you thought were going to be simple, like the name, often kind of throw you for a loop and it's like, oh, um, you know, next time we'll be able to, we'll be either we'll develop a process to, to move through it more efficiently, or it's just something that you got to plan for. Simon, there, there was a point in the, in the dark swamp of despair where I think they, they wanted to name it neon. And, uh, I mean, maybe that's a good kind of name, Maybe millennials get that, but all I could think of was like Dodge Neon, like one of the shittiest cars out there. And, and I just, I, I just actually, I think like 
a bunch of us raised up against that and then fought for something a little truer to our hearts and to our intent. <laughs> yeah, I remember this that. Is, this is clearly a play on Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Is that is that accurate? That's um, that's one interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> I think also the Canadian factor kind of played into it, as we say Zed up here and the Americans say Z. So it was, I don't know if that was, it was maybe coincidental that it was Zed and it played to the Canadianism of the brand maybe. Uh, but like I said, that's, that's marketing's uh, baby. Yeah. I want to kind of, Back up here, at least to the Ion. What year did the Ion come out? And let's talk a little bit about how you guys, as binding designers, sort of saw the landscape of AT binding options and offerings at that time, and sort of what new changes or paradigms or materials have come out to make the Z possible. So, with the Ion, um, I guess we're coming off of the launch of a, a binding called the Onyx, which mm-hmm. um, commercially wasn't very successful. But if you look at our intellectual property, um, it was really kind of innovative in, in, in quite a few ways and has been imitated. And a bunch of good stuff was created there. But it was kind of like the Homer Simpson of binding or the Homer Simpson car of bindings. Like we just put too many features. We couldn't like stop ourselves from getting excited about like trying to reinvent every little bit of the tech binding. So um, the ION launched in, we started showing it to dealers in November, 2013. And we sold it to our first customers in, uh, in the winter of, 2014-15 and with respect to uh, we just wanted to have a very very solid simple um, tech binding that was true to kind of the G3 DNA and in G at G3 we we're not really like I guess we're kind of like middlers we don't really like wear spandex and run uphill um, but at the same time, you know, we're not like totally broed out free ride downhill, like, you know, down focused only skiers. We like t- to enjoy both. Like we very much are about, um, ski touring and enjoying it and developing r- tools that you can use for that with a lot of trust and, so for the ION, we absolutely needed to get a foothold in the market. And uh, so we kind of ditched our egos. We took all the good things we developed out of the uh, Onyx, <laughs> reformed them in a, in a good feature set for the ION, and uh, had a reasonably well-executed launch. And, and it's been a pretty big success for G3. Just to get back to answer your question about the Z, like what's changed in between now and then to enable the Z's development, most of it is just like creativity and um, and design improvements and maturity on our end. Um, there aren't any like extremely, extremely cutting edge 
materials or manufacturing processes. The one thing I'll highlight is that um, like the reason why we're able to go so fast is that prototyping technology has changed to such a degree that we can just like envision, model, test, and then kind of repeat that cycle super quick and, you know, prototype out ideas very quickly um, that leads to us. It doesn't take us like other brands, like three to four years to develop a new binding. I'd also say in terms of like measuring and quantifying things and taking the emotional side out of it, that's one of our favorite things to do is, you know, this, if we say something's heavier, it's like, oh, well, is it, or is, have you measured how much heavier it is or, or it's that, like, it seems like it should be stronger. Well, have you measured it? Is it stronger? And I think that combined with the rapid prototyping leads us to like a really uh, strong, uh, design concept or, or proof in a really short amount of time. I want to put this question, it's kind of, I think Cam just spoke to this, but we'll ask it this way and see if uh, I get verification of this answer. So is it fair to say then, it, it is the way you guys would think about this, that the Z design started on sort of the ion chassis and got stripped down from there or was it more of a ground up approach in terms of the toe like uh, it's pretty obvious when you look at it it's definitely based off of an ion uh, and that was more of a uh, practice of optimization um, and and breaking it down and making it yeah um, just more streamlined without affecting the performance um, the heel is a little bit of a different story um, and maybe Simon or Cam can can speak to that because they spend most of the time on that, um, and that's where most of our engineering time was spent on the heel um, because mm-hmm. it, it is different than the than the ion. Mike's pretty good at like not taking credit and like <laughs> like he it's very he, very Canadian of you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. He's, he's quite <laughs> quite polite and reserved, and like you know, I I I might define his position at G three as like general ass kicker. Like he just pretty much does everything he does quite well, and what's not really transparent on tech bindings to. Um, the general public is um, most of the load and the things that can break bindings go through the toe. And Mike just absolutely knocked it out of the park, stripping all the weight that he could out of it, but staying true to the G3 philosophy of like this product, you can still ski quite hard. And if you, you know, happen to have like a binding test fatigue machine, you can see for yourself that like it will last significantly longer than competitors. And I think we pretty much broke everybody's binding on the market. So um, that's what Simon brought up in that we were, we're like, my favorite thing is emotional engineering, like kind of like picking a wall thickness and kind of going with it. But I've had these guys to support me now and balance me and like, prove me wrong or right at times and actually like design, analyze, test and validate. And then you wind up with something that's pretty robust. And Simon, you should speak to the heel. Yeah. The, the heel, there, there's some uh, facets that are built or that were you that we use the ion as a launching off point. And the first thing that comes to mind is the, the forward falling uh, release mechanism um, so that that stays unchanged for the Z. Uh, 
So using um, that as kind of the launching off point, actually, it wasn't it wasn't initially like that. But when we when we changed gears uh, before the pit of despair, uh, we, we had decided on a different concept in terms of using the same uh, release mechanism for the ion, and then doing something clever with the twisting uh, release of the ion. And basically eliminating that and the set of springs that go with it, and then um, using the springs that we use for the forward falling, and instead of using the front end of them only, to use now the back end of them, uh, and kind of to couple those springs with now an, a new motion, which we hadn't done before, and no one's really done before, so. In terms of uh, using that as a platform, uh, that's kind of where we borrowed from the ION. Uh, and then we kind of engineered some twist and release. So I guess backing up, we, we kind of started with the release and, re release and retention functions of the binding and then added more features uh, as we went along. But that's kind of where we, we build out from uh, when we start a binding project. So, so Simon, correct, so, correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, it sounds like in the ION, there's two separate springs to, that, that, that control the two different release mechanisms that forward following the lateral release. And one way you guys cut weight on the Z is to decouple those two release mechanisms, but have them use the same spring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, exactly. They're actually, they're actually not decoupled. Um, but for m all intents and purposes that a consumer would detect, they are uncoupled. Um, and the technology that kind of allows it, um, it's, it's actual foundation is in hugging. So, um, <laughs> your Lord, yeah, you more about this. <laughs> Simon, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave it to you to cover what, what the hug okay. technology is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other name we had for it wasn't probably radio friendly, but, but essentially how the, how <laughs> First of all, this is our program, and we will decide if it's radio. Oh, I think Simon's right. I think Simon's right. I think we should stay focused on hugging. Yes, right. on the hug. On okay. The hug. So, so the, okay. the ion used the springs always to push, to push, to push. So when you dialed in the um, the twisting release on the ion, you would, you know, make that spring cavity shorter by you know squeezing it and, and pushing against a cam uh, a camming mechanism or camming face so what we did is instead of pushing against the cam mechanism we went around to the other side and hugged it and then kind of pull on the cam face if that makes any sense so yeah we instead of pushing we're hugging so then what what uh, what does that it's clear in my mind i can see it's so clear in my mind it's just hard to describe on radio i think what it is is kind of uh, we're basically using both sides of the same spring mm -hmm. um we're using one side for your lateral or your forward falling release and then that hugging mechanism grabs the spring spring from the other end and and uses it for the other uh mecha release mechanism. oh okay so there's just one screw to manipulate there in, in order to dial yourself in. And the ion Instead had two adjustment just, screws, right? Correct, yeah. Question for Mike, if we go back to the to the toe piece. 
Cause you, mm-hmm. you had mentioned Mike that um, you had kind of stripped down all of the weight off of the ion topies that was possible while maintaining a, a really, you know, robust and durable, durable toe with similar geometry. And earlier we talked about that there wasn't any like really new materials or anything on that front. So it'd be cool to talk to how you were able to strip weight off of the toe piece while maintaining similar performance. Well, first of all, we were dealing with a little bit shorter uh, of a heel too, so we're lower on the ski, so that right away um, you're you're moving about a material underneath it that isn't necessarily in use. Um, and just in general, with the kind of modeling software that we use and the, the tools that we can use with the like finite element analysis, we can actually simulate. Um, what loads are going into it and where the highest stresses are. And then we can focus on the areas of the binding that aren't seeing those stresses. Um, so we've largely came down to just taking an ion and running it through all those tests and running it through the years of experience we've had with the ion and knowing how robust it is um, and actually kind of digging into the areas that, um, you know, if you have to start off with an idea of where you think you can take it away and then model it and iterate and, and kind of come down to a, a point where you're comfortable with uh, how it works and starting with the ion with the geometry we had it was we didn't want to change anything we really like how it functions um, the ion toe is really uh, strong really good retention for skiing and touring so keeping that ge- that baseline geometry the same and just narrowing in on on the the overbuilt areas essentially well i guess we shouldn't defer to you guys since you know your emotional engineers and all. Uh, I was just going to, when we're looking at the the measured weights we had of like a pair of, of ion bindings was around 600, 640 grams. The Z without breaks, the number we have, we haven't seen the binding in person yet, but the, the number we have is 345 grams without breaks. So I guess the big question here, um, and maybe we can get you all fired, um, why should somebody still buy an Ion over a Z? Because so far, what you've claimed is you've managed to shave this weight while keeping, I'm going to be provocative, exactly the same performance uh, characteristics of an Ion. So this is our honesty corner now. Are we really, like, in terms of that especially downhill performance, usually we have a thing where we don't think you can magically remove weight without having any effect on performance. Yeah, that's called physics. Yeah, right? We didn't say that we kept the exact same. Um, What Mike described at the toe is that the ion is a little bit overbuilt. and, And for some customers, that's a really good thing. Yeah, Like we have never, ever had a single warranty for a broken aluminum part in the ion and so for those users who like to be on really big skis and ski super hard in and out of bounds we'd still recommend the ion um to them mm-hmm. the the Z like like physics defines um you can't you know take weight or material away and have the exact same um performance that'd be like kind of like a definition of madness um or like unobtainium or something um but what we have done is defined a reasonable uh lifetime and the z definitely has been shortened 
from the ion a little bit. And so what that means is like bindings don't generally, our bindings anyways, don't fail by overload. So they don't usually, you can't really break them by um, like a single high load. Like part of our process is actually like applying loads so they rip out of the skis before anything breaks. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, to make it kind of the ski company's problem. Um, (laughs) Smart. Yeah. So, well, we're engineers, right? Emotional or not, we're pretty crafty. Um, but but what we have done is the, the Z still has like in its in its weight class, it still has a way higher um, fatigue life than competitors, and that's mainly due to the way Mike designed it. It's also made or due to the fact that we we forge it, and that that really gets the material grains going in the right directions to handle the loads that um, are passed through it. And so I think that kind of clarifies more what we're talking about in terms of um, optimizing things. There is a customer still for the ion, but it's someone who's going to maybe be slow to adopt like the most cutting edge of technologies. So that then would be if we've got people listening to this and they have been thinking about the sort of growing number of um, kind of ultralight bindings on the market and all the various options, it sounds to me like I just heard you say the the strongest pitch you would make for why somebody ought to consider the Z is because you think you can get more durability at a similar weight. No, no, that's that's just one facet of the reason to choose the Z. All right, rank them. Give me the literally. Give me this is your opportunity. Your top three reasons in order. Okay, I'm not in marketing, but I'm going to do my best. So, yep. so it, it's 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 sim- simplicity, ease of use, and performance. And when when you define performance, we always talk about performance on the down and performance on the up. And it has the best balance of of those kind of three three things um, in the lighter weight class of bindings. And and let's kind of like clear up uh, uh, definitions here because like ultralight bindings, like say sub 200 gram bindings, Mm They're like in a totally different class. Like they're they're used for racing and kind of fitness and and really like from measuring a bunch of them, they're not up for the task um, to ski a really wide ski or last a super long time. Um, or at least in the testing that we've done, we're not confident to really recommend those um, for bigger skis. Um, and Cam, let me let me stop you just for a sec. Sure. What is your definition of a quote unquote big ski or wider ski? Is is there like a there is there a width yeah. whatever like at one hundred where you're like wow we're starting to see at this particular width this is kind of the the line in the sand. Do you guys have something like that? Yeah, I, I'd say you actually nailed it. Like a hundred under foot is like kind of the beginning of where it gets wide. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely, if you're ever into like the 108 plus, you want to think twice about what you have um, connecting you to your ski, um, force-wise. 
Um, but you know, the wider it gets, it's essentially just like a lever and it just magnifies the forces that are going through that connection. And so again, just cause I think a lot of our listeners in particular, this, this is going to strike a chord. Are you saying then, so if I'm, if I'm touring on something that's 108 or 112 underfoot, which like I was yesterday and the day before, uh, at that point, are you like, dude, you want to start getting into a heavier binding or do you want to start, you want to start getting into a binding with a wider footprint, both other things? Uh, well, footprint, you nailed it. That's the single most important thing. So mount pattern, um, you really want to get the biggest mount pattern you can, because that, that's what reduces pullouts. And that's, we, we kind of cut our teeth on that early on with the Onyx. We had a really narrow um, mounting pattern that we inherited from a competitor. And we found that we just had warranty after warranty because people were seeking out our binding to ski on bigger and bigger skis. So um, mount pattern's important. I mean, the Zed's not heavy. So like I fully recommend somebody to ski on the Zed on a, a ski that wide. Where it might differ is like, how are they using that wide ski? Are, are they like spending like, 80% of their time on the resort. If, if they're kind of in that category, I'd totally say choose something heavy because then you're kind of using the wrong tool for the job. Um, if you're mainly ski touring, um, a lot of those really light bindings, um, they can be totally adequate. It, it, it just comes down to like the physics of it is like the number of cycles that you uh, load the binding and then what that peak load is. Um, and wide skis kind of control the size of the load. Um, and usually like motorized versus non-motorized kind of dominates the like number of cycles that you put it through. So one of the things that I'm sort of curious about is that there are several companies right now that are using, um, fiber and carbon reinforced plastics to bring down weight and increase responsiveness and stiffness and things like that. Um, did you guys look into carbon re reinforced composites or, or I guess why or why not have you, have you not been using it? We already use fiber reinforced plastics. Um, did look into carbon. Um, unless you do it very, very carefully. Um, and, uh, go for like a long fiber and then are very, very careful with how you create holes in parts like that. Um, you don't necessarily get a major weight gain and you, you can risk uh, a major um, brittleness problem in plastics that you use with, with ski bindings, it's ultra critical. Like the single most important thing aside from strength that you want to think about when you're using it is low temperature impact strength. That's how this stuff gets loaded. Um, and when, when I compare fiberglass reinforced plastic toughness compared to, um, carbon reinforced plastic, we we didn't quite have the part designed perfectly to leverage a more brittle part, but it is something that you might see from us in the future. We're just um, we're only going to use it if it makes sense, and we're not necessarily going to like just jump on the bandwagon and do something unless there's a real tangible um, benefit that's applicable to our design. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I, and I mean, I think that's smart. And obviously, you guys have had a lot of success with the aluminum in in, in the ion. It's worked well. It's just it's curious because there are some high profile bindings coming out with with um with ca- with carbon reinforced plastic. So so that's 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 curious. I'm super excited to uh, see how year one goes for those guys and try that out myself and get it on the machine because I'm not uh, saying that it can't be a uh, a big benefit but you have to do it extremely right and i learned a really painful lesson early on in my career with the onyx um that when you when you use those fibers and we we actually did long fiber reinforced plastics in in the ion it's like not that new a thing it's been around for a while uh you can get a tougher um composite by using longer fibers but you have to be very careful in in how those fibers flow around um posts in the mold or you have to use really emerging technologies like those other guys are where they they'll inject a part with long fiber material and then they'll then they'll actually create the like the holes for mounting after like while the part is kind of still in the mold and they'll push the material out of the way. And so those are pretty high tech and I'm like, I'm like you, I'm, my eyes are fully open and I'm stoked to see how that works. But year one for bindings can be tricky. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to let the products speak for themselves. We'll see how it goes. Piggybacking off that last question. I mean, we're seeing a, just a slew of new AT bindings coming out and I'm curious what, trends you guys like and what trends you're seeing where maybe you're like dude i don't think that's gonna work or that scares me or something (laughs) contentious um yeah trying to get a bunch of polite canadians fired (laughs) up and talking shit so we're we're, we're not that good at slinging mud but mike and simon do you want to give a go like Cam mentioned earlier, I mean, we we build, we're not you know, a lot of spandex wares and we're not necessarily, you know, big mountain hawkers. So it's we're largely influenced by what we do and we do kind of all of it. So we're, that's why our product shows, shows that, that it comes out like that. We're not, we're not making the, the sub 200 gram bindings. And um, so, you know. Our, our product kind of speaks to the way we the way we uh, lean in in that regard. Or like plus plus like seven or eight hundred gram bindings. Um, there's definitely some trends on the market um, that, as a ski touring company, um, I I would question. Um, I think if you're going to design a product and say that it's like a very good tool in the backcountry, then really there's, there's weight matters. Um, and it, and it obviously matters more to those who are going further and climbing higher, but even to someone who maybe might be just getting into the sport, weight is like one of the, in a, in a human powered sport, it's like almost the most important variable um, that you have to, as a designer, focus on. So um, designs that really um, over-engineer or, or provide solutions that aren't necessarily needed, those are the kind of things that I, I really don't like. 
Would you guys say you spend more time looking at like the ultralight category of bindings and what's being done there? Or do you spend more time looking at innovations happening on that heavier uh, end of the range? Or is the answer neither? No, I'd say it's both. We definitely okay. keep ourselves very much abreast of like any emerging technologies because you never know where like you could be inspired or um, you know like there's a ton of clever people out there and um, yeah, I mean like some of our binding designs have been influenced by lighter stuff and others by by heavier. It really kind of comes down to that same question is like does this benefit the user that i'm designing this product for um and in that realm there's like the concept of good and bad ideas doesn't really exist it's just more about like does it does this concept further this design or better this approach um and like I have a fascination even with like Alpine racing bindings, like the heaviest of the heavy or the most complicated of the complicated um, because some of that stuff can either trickle down or spark an idea that you, you know, wouldn't have had if you hadn't been exposed to how somebody had approached a problem. I, I would just, I got, you, you wanted a little mud. I'd say there's actually way more innovation going on on the heavy side of things and that like the ultralight um class is a bunch of folks knock, knocking off you spring bindings um and there's i don't i don't see a ton of innovation there i see it kind of being commoditized by big brands and um yeah there's some real negatives like like this is actually one thing i would like to raise on the zed um U-spring bindings, you guys are familiar with those? Like, Say more. Say more about that. So um, a U-spring binding is where um, the heel pins, it's just one single loop of material that, that is formed to be kind of the, the heel release mechanism for forward falling. So those things have like a dirty little secret that, that like nobody really mentions and I've been tabling it and trying to just inform people that um, there was actually a, a PhD done recently on factors that influence release consistency in tech bindings done by Jeff Campbell. I'm not sure if you guys have seen any of his presentations. Yeah. So he's a super sharp guy and, and he's totally on it. And one of the things he, he proved or showed in his in his dissertation was how sensitive the release characteristics are to the the inserts that go into your boot and the tolerances um, and the dimensions of those parts so to get back to my original comment the u-spring bindings what they don't do um which the zed and a whole bunch of other classic tech bindings do is when you step into a Z, the two heel pins actually are pivoted and they can roll and they allow the insert to roll and not slide into the ski mode position like when you're stepping in. And there's actually like quite a big load that develops on the surface of those, those inserts. And 
In contrast, on a U-spring binding, what happens is you basically jam the, the wedge into them and slide it through. And in the testing we did on repeated step-ins, um, you, can, you can basically wear your heel spring down very, very quickly, especially with any U-spring that's, that's claiming to be a high RV value, like, like anything in the RV12 range as a U-spring, it's A, super hard to step into, and B, it's going to damage the insert in your boot very quickly, like in as little as like 50 step-ins. You're going to lose like multiple points off of your release value setting. And, you know, unless you measure stuff, you can't with integrity really speak on that, but um, that's what we found doing our testing. And, and that's why I'm really not that inspired by that um, class of binding is just everybody kind of knocks off an original kind of DinaFit design and, and there's not a ton of innovation there. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I mean, I also think it is fairly terrifying as a consumer. I just, we don't know that much about bindings, right? I mean, like backcountry skiers and alpine skiers, I just don't think most of us have a very clear idea of what all is going on or isn't going on, right? When we're stepping in or clicking into a binding. And so I think hearing some things like this and just starting to try to get a bit more transparency out there um, is a pretty useful thing we can all be doing, especially when, frankly, marketing copy just kind of relentlessly wants to talk about lighter with no compromise. I mean, like, we see that all the time in this, like every fucking ski that comes out. That's the story on every single ski right? Every single boot now that comes out, it's the same thing. And it's just like, guys, mm -hmm. this is misleading in areas where, you know, if I just feel like it's, it is a responsible thing for us. Like, that's cool. If that, you know, I'm not saying that that ultralight class of binding shouldn't exist. I just think we do a much better job for the potential consumer if we're letting people know, here's where you're making your compromises. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I actually, I, I give a talk uh, to the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides um, from time to time at their annual general meeting. And uh, one of the like more misunderstood topics is like um, certification, release value, what it means to be TUV certified. And yeah. um, like the, what I did for my talk was like, I just wanted to cover, well, these are the things that get tested when you get a certified binding. Um, but things like fatigue life, um, safety in tour mode, um, reliability, simplicity, snow packing, um, many of those things um, just have absolutely no... Um, they, they don't get tested at all. And, and most pin bindings that aren't um, kind of above maybe 600 grams aren't certified. So a ton of it, of the responsibility of either making a safe or appropriate um, technology 
for the consumer is is completely left to the manufacturer and to to be a consumer these days is a major pain because like there's just so much stuff on the market and 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 like like you say like trying to read through the marketing drivel out there and actually form an imp- like an informed decision on what you're going to purchase and what compromise you're making by purchasing it is a daunting task even for like a binding engineer um, are we ready to wrap? Any last pressing speak now or forever, forever hold your peace comments? I, I would just like to give a shout out to, um, we, we also work with a, a pretty incredible industrial design firm in Vancouver, who I'm not going to name, but they knew who they are and they do an amazing job for us. <laughs> nice. We send hugs to you. <laughs> <laughs> unnamed industrial design firm. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I literally am not going to be able to top that as an outro. So uh, I think we're just going to, we're going to end there. We would like to thank our presenting sponsor, uh, Dodge Neon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, um, we'll just say uh, to Cam, Simon and Mike, thank you guys. I, we appreciate you joining us and appreciate the information. And um, we are very interested to, uh, to check out uh, this Z binding you guys have come up with. So uh, thanks again for taking the time today. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks so much to you guys. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Cam Shoot, Simon Hammond, Mike Coletti, and Sam Shaheen for the conversation. And, of course, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. Also, of course, if you haven't yet subscribed to this Gear 30 podcast, you can do so on that very smart phone of yours or on your laptop or desktop where you'll find Gear 30 over in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast player you use. Thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you again next week.